This holiday season, send the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years, Omaha Steaks. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter code YUM into the search bar to get 74% off the family gift package, now only $49.99. Order now and you'll get over 30 items from hand-cut top sirloin steaks and kielbasa sausages to caramel apple tartlets. Go to omahasteaks.com, type YUM in the search bar, and add the family gift package to your cart. Hey guys and welcome to episode 201 of the Startup Diary. Today we have a very special guest on the show. Originally from the UK, she moved to Arizona for grad school in 2005 but ended up staying. She's an accidental entrepreneur who's making it up as she goes along but she wants to make the world a kinder and more equal place by helping organizations realize the change they want to see in the world. It's Catherine Alonso from Havelina. Hi guys. Catherine, fantastic to have you in the office. You've actually travelled up, was it from London today? Where have you come up from? Chesterfield. From Chesterfield. So not too far. Not too far today. Um, but as Harry originally stated in the opening to this, by the way, nice intro. Like like that, it was powerful. Um, you are based in the States. Business is based in the States. Yes, that's right. So I just want to jump straight into it and just get an understanding of, uh, you're originally from the UK, moved over to the States. What was the life uh, what was the moment in your life that actually resulted in you moving over there? Let's, let's take it way back there. Way back. So I always wanted to go to America. I'd never been. And my original intention was to do a study abroad program when I went to uni. And that was the whole reason I chose the university I did, Nottingham, because they had a great study in the States program. But, you know, your undergrad is only three years and I didn't want to miss a whole year. I just met all these great new people. And so I didn't decide not to go. I just let the deadline pass. Okay. <laughs> and then it was very, very passive. passive. Yeah, very yeah. passive aggressive decision making. Um, and so when I graduated, I got a job working for a charity in the Midlands, realized that working full time sucks. And can, wasn't... I just, can I just take in what, what made you... What made you want to get a job with a charity? Because oh, it was what I was Is that... able, able to get. Okay. I think I don't know if other people had this experience, but I went through university, sort of being told that I was going to graduate from this institution and the world was going to be my oyster, and then graduated and discovered that I wasn't worth anybody to, anything to anybody. That I didn't have any relevant experience, and I worked all the way through university, so I even had more experience than the people graduating with me, but. I just, I had all these dreams of getting this fancy job and in the end it took me ages to get a job and I was doing, I was an information officer, which basically meant, this was in the very early days of search engines, so basically meant, uh, look, I was going to say Googling, but I was not Googling <laughs> at that point. There was looking, air quotes, yeah, by the way, Googling things and um, giving them to our service users. And so I didn't, I did not love it. Okay. And I really early on started thinking, uh, maybe I'll go to the States and do a master's degree. Not because I had any interest in a master's degree, but just because it was a way to get me to America. And so it was such a, it was a great decision, but it was a poorly made decision in that how I, so I had um, an aunt who was American. So I had to give me a list of universities where I would probably be able to get funding uh, because I didn't uh, have any way of paying for this. So I- Just out of curiosity, what are the costs? Obviously, I know the UK costs have just gone up fairly recently. Expensive. So gosh, I remember what my master's degree cost. I don't think I even remember. It was a a a lot lot of money. It was a lot. And I had absolutely no way of paying for it. And I hadn't really thought that through. So I just Googled, again, Google in air quotes. I looked up on AOL uh, these universities and applied to the hottest ones because I also am a hot weather person. And I just wanted, I was sick and tired of living in the rain. And I just- What happens when you're in the UK? Yeah, I just wanted sunshine. And so I applied to Arizona State University and the University of South Florida ASU were just so much more helpful. It was really hard to navigate the system. It didn't feel like the early days of the internet, but now it feel with hindsight, it feels like the early days of the internet and that the website was just clunky and it was difficult if you're an international student. So I applied, got in, 
booked a one-way ticket <laughs> from London to Phoenix on a credit card on my interest-free egg card, which I wasn't I wasn't thinking wow. forward uh, about how long that was going to be interest-free. And then it was <laughs> <laughs> it was on my on the plane. And I was like, oh, this is really far. I had no concept of American geography or how big America is. I think you maybe have to be in it to just get an idea of how huge the country is. And I was not conscious of the fact that I was choosing to live somewhere that's an 11 hour flight away from home. And so I remember I just, I landed um, and I was so jet lagged and I was standing in the shower just crying. It was like something out of a sitcom. Uh, and if I had not been committed to a two-year program, I absolutely would have quit after. The first eight weeks were amazing because they were like a holiday in the sun. Okay. But then after that, it got really real and really hard. And I w- did not have a job or any way of paying for this. So I was living on a credit card. I got a job at a bagel shop. You can, if you do your degree there, you can only work 20 hours a week on a student visa and you have to work on campus. So I was earning minimum wage at the bagel shop 20 hours a week, living on stolen food. I gained so much weight because I was eating bagels for breakfast, (laughs) I should do that. Uh, I stole so many bagels. I would like get the orders wrong on purpose and they'd be like, oh man, I got that one wrong. (laughs) Um, Under the counter for later. Oh my goodness. And then uh, Miracle of All Miracles in December, I applied for a graduate assistantship and I think I was the only applicant. I think I actually legitimately was the only applicant and got it. And that was, it paid my tuition and it gave me a stipend. So then that funded the rest of my degree. My credit card that I lived on for that first semester and put trips on and stuff for the rest of my uh, degree, I paid off in 2011. Wow. With a gift that I received, a cash gift I received for getting married. Okay, nice. <laughs> and just talking about marriage and then just to rewind it to family a bit, obviously you're traveling halfway around the world, going to the States. Mm. It's probably settled a little bit because you said your auntie was out there. Is that right? Uh, no, she was here, but she was originally from the States. Oh, okay. What did your family think about you going over to America? You know, I grew up in a family, my dad in particular, He, him, he's one of five and they were all born on different continents. He really values travel. And I grew up in a family where we were really taught to travel and to flee the nest is a sign of success um we i had lived in i think 13 houses by the time i was four we like moved around a lot and the longest i had ever lived anywhere um we moved to solihull when i was 13 and i lived there until i went to university and that was the longest so i i think i just always they were really supportive and it's hard it's hard for them it's hard for my mom in particular but I think she you know you just want your kids to be happy right Mm. so I think um for for as as hard as it is there are also really great benefits to it one of the great benefits is that when you do spend time with your family you value it so much there is no taking any moment for granted and we've done some really cool holidays together we meet in the middle we, you know, we're we're more conscientious about spending that special right. time together, yeah. Cool, and this is just super interesting for me, just get, uh, getting an understanding of what you do in your day-to-day job to hear that you've gone through so much change. By the time you're four years old, you've lived in 13 different houses. Let me just fast forward a little bit to get an understanding for the people listening of what the company you do today is, and then we'll just get into sort of the timeline of events, how you've grown the business. And basically, so listeners to the show can get an understanding of what it's like to build a business and from what it sounds like when you do it by accident to start with. So uh, what is Havelinas? What does it do today? And then we're going to get into uh, exactly how you sort of started the business and got it to where it is. Yes. So Havelina is named after a wild pig that is indigenous to Arizona. So it's spelled J-A-V-E-L-I-N-A. So anyone listening outside of Arizona wouldn't know that. Uh, so Havelina is today, it's a change engineering company. So what that means is we work with our clients and our clients are nonprofit agencies, businesses, and political campaigns to marry together strategies from the worlds of marketing and the worlds of political campaigns to imagine and realize change focused goals. So we essentially help our clients change the world. And what makes us different is that marriage together of the strategies from the two worlds, because there are a ton of amazing marketing agencies out there. And political campaigns is such a massive industry in the States that what doesn't exist as often is that marrying together both, because in today's 
hyper competitive technologically driven online world you need both you need a really powerful story but then you also need the ability to mobilize people around that story and it's not enough anymore to just create a beautifully curated brand and throw it out onto the internet you need to build a movement around that brand as well so firstly that's probably the best um, explanation of a company and its mission that i've ever heard like that was just so succinct that was uh, that was uh, perfect um but then it spouts loads of questions for me uh just to get an understanding of that is such a huge huge mission that you're on yes uh and just speaking directly uh why are you guys qualified to do it what's the backstory that one made you want to do it uh and then to get to the place where you are today with 13 employees uh six years in but as we spoke about the sort of core business you're in is like 18 months old um so there's loads of stuff there. Let's unpackage it. Uh, why you? Why your team? How did it start and who did you start it with? So it started in 2012 with my two business partners, Bill and David, and they are still my business partners today. And Where did you meet Bill and David? So David was my first boss when I started working in the States. So I'll tell a really truncated version of the story. So I did my master's degree. I graduated if you do your full degree in, your, in the States, you get um, something called OPT, Optional Practical Training, which is just 12 months and you can work wherever. And I had been volunteering on a political campaign and through that work met the people that were running the consulting firm. So when I graduated, they when I graduated in December 2007, so I got really lucky with the timing because six months later, the bottom fell out of the economy mm-hmm. and the company downsized hugely. So I got hired to um, work as David's personal assistant. So I was picking up his, I was, how was I, old was I? Like 25, 26, I had a master's degree and I was picking up his dry cleaning and getting his kids from school and doing his scheduling. And I recognized that if I was going to get a work visa, I had to apply for the work visa six months later. So I, <clears throat> I knew, excuse me, I knew that if I was going to do that, I had to make myself invaluable. So I just did everything in that company that they didn't want to do. Makes sense. So, and then David just taught me. And so in 2012, that company shifted and changed and it mostly moved to Washington, D.C. And David wanted to stay in Phoenix. So he said to me, let's go into business together. Wow. So he gave, and I didn't you were asking me before we started like what led to that decision i didn't really have any other options because (laughs) my visa was tied to the other company and so and i didn't have a green card so i didn't even consider it was i remember talking about it with my then fiance and i was like i went to lunch with david today and he suggested going to business together i think yes right and he said (laughs) sure and that was the conversation That that was it that's all i remember I don't remember there being any question or consideration of a different option. Was that was that because you just had the respect for David that you could do some business together or is that because you just don't have another option? If this doesn't work out, you've got to come back to the UK. I think it was, I don't, I think, yes, I think those were the reasons. I think in my brain, it was just like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do this. And a lot, a lot of my story, how I got to Arizona, how I started a business, how I managed to pay for a master's degree I couldn't afford was all because I didn't know what I didn't know. It was just because I think, and because I wasn't running it past anybody, I was just doing what sounded good to me. I don't know. I think my parents had a lot going on through these years because not at any point did they uh, ask me what my plan was or how I was going to pay for this or anything like that. (laughs) Uh, So I think they obviously just had some blind trust that it was all going to be fine. So would you say that you've basically stumbled into where you are today? Mm -hmm. But I think there's a a lesson to be learned in terms of a lot of people, and me and Harry talked about this actually recently, most people get opportunities but because they tend to be so closed off they just a very negative mindset is when opportunities literally come come knocking uh they don't realize it's an opportunity were you just saying yes to every opportunity you could that would take you that one step forward yes and i think if i have to unpack the characteristics that led me on that journey i'm i'm the opposite of whatever the opposite of risk averse is i kind of love risk and i would not have use those words until recently but when I look back I think okay I had to be uh sort of love the risk I think that my decision from a really early age was just do everything that gets offered to you and do it really well and observe 
myself in it to see what I like. Cool. And that whenever I'm giving career advice to people, that's what I say. Just do anything that comes your way and then observe yourself in it and find out what you do and don't like. Because no one knows. But it's that, it's that sit back and review thing that not many people do. They sort of get into the mindset of this is what I do mm. and just say, oh, I get up, I do X, Y, and Z. And they just get themselves into this routine. I think the really interesting thing, what you said, which I want anyone that's listening to the show to take away at this point is if you don't, regardless of what you do today, regardless whether you're an entrepreneur, running your own business or in a nine to five, take a step back and just do that. Reflect, work out, is this a routine that you enjoy? If not, look for some change. Um, I want to dig into the fact that what did David, what was his pitch? What was his proposal? Like people listening are thinking, ah, Catherine's landed on a feet. She had someone with a business idea that came to her and said, would you like to enter business? And people listening to the show are thinking like, that isn't happening for me right now, but what was his pitch in the first place? Yeah, so his pitch was essentially let's continue doing what we'd been doing under this other consulting firm, but just the two of us under a new umbrella. So, and and yeah, it's, it's true. I haven't thought about this for ages, but there's some technical pieces that aren't that interesting where essentially it was, it wasn't, it didn't feel to me like starting a new business. It was a continuation of a business that had existed before. And did you retain any of the existing relationships, any of the clients? Relationships, yes, but not clients. Because because it was political. uh, And this happened, this would have happened in December 2010. So everything is so cyclical that everything shuts completely down after the campaign. So when we were doing the campaigns we did in the end of November 2010, everything shuts down and then you start again, really, in building a client base. Okay. And so... um, I hate that idea. uh, Well... (laughs) Just for me in terms of this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's um, one of the reasons that Havelina has changed the way it has is because when we... So David and I ran a company just for one year for 2011 and we did really we did one main campaign which was the guy that was running for the mayor of phoenix at the time and that was really our main thing and then a third guy bill joined us in in at the end of 2011 and then january 2012 is when we and we kind of started again and we called it Havelina, and that was when it really became a company is in its own right but even then again we were starting again with the clients and when we started I remember one of our very first conversations the three of us was we are going to have to figure out a way to diversify our offerings because you can't build a business around political campaigns because you have to you hire seasonal staff and then you have to scale all the way back down and the big consulting firms that are mostly based in DC but there's some in Seattle New York and the states that do campaign cycle after campaign cycle they have the founders and then they have maybe a couple of core senior staff members that they keep and everything else is seasonal and they build it up and they crush it down and they build it up and oh. they crush it down. And it's really, and we want to build something sustainable and you can't really do that if you're only doing campaigns. I want to dig into who Bill is. How did yeah. Bill enter the company? And Bill, I've got a bunch of stuff around finding clients, which I'm just personally intrigued with. So Bill and had worked in politics for a long time and Bill and David are much older than me. So Bill is in his early sixties and David is in his early fifties and Bill and David had worked to, and I sort of knew Bill uh, because we'd worked on a project together, but I was a baby, a professional baby at that point. So I was I really a professional baby. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, really intimidated by him. And so Bill and David knew each other and he was leaving a political position and so David said to me, hey, what do you think about Bill Shield joining us? And again, I think I was like, yeah, sure, sounds good. And I remember the first time that we met, the three of us, we met at my apartment at the time. And I was really nervous that Bill was going to show up first because I didn't know what I was going to say to him. And he did show up first and we had a very awkward conversation and I was really nervous. And that's crazy because at that point we had already filed the LLC. Wow. So it really was a, situ- a position of just not knowing what I didn't know. And just out of curiosity, so you've got uh, two guys uh, more senior than mm-hmm. yourself. Yep. Um, uh, one age-wise and professionally. Was there any concern for you? Because I understand the business is a three-way partnership. Mm-hmm. Was there any concern for you that David was bringing someone in and you were going to get, sque- not squeezed out, but uh, there was going to be some... Uh, a new dynamic to the business was that ever a concern that wasn't a concern what was a concern and we talked about this was that it would be much harder so we have a 
charmingly referred to as an eat what you kill structure. So based on what you bring in, that's the profit that you're making. Um, So there was a concern that I was going to be severely disadvantaged in terms of the ability to bring in clients being younger and having less of a network. And we talked about that. And that was partially why we set it up the way we set it up, which was you get a certain percentage for bringing a client in and then you get a certain percentage for working on a client. Okay. So essentially it would, if I wasn't able to bring in clients, but then I was working on them, they, then I would still have the opportunity to make money. And I will say this to any woman listening out there or anybody young listening out there from the very beginning. And this has been consistent all the way through. I have bought in the vast majority of Havelina's clients and brought in more clients than Bill and David at the from the very, very beginning. Why? Because I'm hungry. And I'm hungry in a way that Bill and David aren't hungry. And yeah. I would we have had these conversations if they listen to this. I think Bill and David are phenomenal. And I wouldn't, if I could start again, I would pick the same people over and over and over. And not that we haven't had our challenges. Of course we have. Yeah. Any valuable relationship does. But I that's one of the big things I learned and I remember I think I got our first client I did and it just gave me confidence and then I just kept doing it over and over and over and I learned really pretty quickly I'm really good at it so how do you get this is just a selfish thing that I just want to know because sometimes I even complain about how difficult it is to get in front of uh, C-level staff in some of the agencies or some of the uh, manufacturers that we're trying to deal with I can only imagine it's even more difficult for the sorts of clients you're going after like what does your sales cycle look like? And this is completely off tangent, me being selfish. Like, Walk me through very quickly what your sales cycle looks like when you're trying to find clients on the political side. I know you do more business. Uh, you do commercial stuff as well. What does the political sales cycle look like? So the political side is actually the easier side okay. because the way it works is this is very small community and all the people running for office know who the available firms are and the available firms know who's running for office. So it's actually kind of like finding who you want to go to the school dance with ah okay because obviously like a solicitor it's exclusive you work you represent one client in right. the, in the race exactly so as as uh as they pick different agencies the pool of people goes down not saying that you're last choice or first choice but there is a select number of people that okay that makes more sense to me now. so it's all about relationships so what that does mean is you have to go to every single political event you have to donate to political um candidates you have to be friends with the people that are going to run for office our best clients have been people it's all personal relationships yeah so it's very 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 relational but if bill and david have got those relationships how are you closing more business and the second follow-up to that is uh you're hungrier than they are right now Mm -hmm. what's going to stop you from getting complacent when you start to have the level of success based on the network like i want to know that so one why are you able to close the business you are and then secondly how do you stop being complacent I think in answer to the first question, I had underestimated my own network when we started. Okay. And the other thing that that I have learned is that, and nobody gave me a heads up on this, so everyone should not underestimate the power of your personal network as they age into senior positions. Mm-hmm. And it's going to fast happen faster than you think it is going to. I don't know if you've had that experience. 100%. And so that's what happened is my personal network and I just have really good friendships. And so most of our early business came from that. And then then once you're established and you have a reputation, then people will refer. So, and, and I'm making it sound like it's easy. It's not easy. It's really, really hard. It's the biggest, it's so hard. It's the biggest amount of energy, where my energy goes, where my intentionality goes. You know, there are times where I'll have to force myself to go to a particular event or network in a particular way. And then there are times when a client goes to a different firm because that's where the relationship is. And that's really frustrating. And so it's really, really difficult. And some, I find myself lying awake at night fantasizing about being able to break outside of that and actually being able to do, to have a funnel and do lead gen. And, you know, in a way we can do that on the other side of the business, but not really the political side. And yeah, you can't automate set and forget and then expect the leads no, to come in. Not at okay. all. And I think that, what, is, that is the dream. <laughs> yeah. I think what I'm learning is that doesn't exist anyway. Uh, I actually agree with you on that one, to be honest. I think uh, when you're growing a SaaS company, like we've got a SaaS product is you're taught to build the funnel, set the automation, but 
especially in our industry, it's all relationship driven. Um, the reason that we win the work we do is because we are approachable. We go to events, we meet our, we meet our members, and we have a face to the company compared to a normal SaaS product, which is just sitting in your phone. Um, I want to dig into the second one. Like, what keeps you hungry? Like, you've been doing this for six years now, and how are you staying hungry right now? That is such a great question. I don't know. I think it's just there. Okay. I think... I... I do think about how long am I going to have this in me and so I'm already and in my head I'm thinking that I'll do this job for 10 years might be a little bit more than that might be a little bit less than that but that's the timeline I'm working on in terms of being able to or having to do a succession plan and then I think there'll be a whole other career after that okay um and so I think maybe that's how I stay hungry although actually I think no so here's the real answer the real answer of why I stay hungry is the personal motivation and the personal motivation comes from so when I was six months old my older brother died in an accident sorry to thank you and I don't I don't remember it and I don't know what it's like to lose a child but I do know what it's like to grow up in a grieving family and it's like a cage suffering creates a cage that limits how people see the world what they think they're capable of what they think is available to them and in my lifetime if i can looking for the best gifts for everyone on your list kendra scott has just what you need find jewelry for every style at an affordable price from diamonds and genuine stones to the season's best trends kendra scott jewelry is a gift that's sure to wow you might even find a few things for yourself. Shop now at KendraScott.com and enjoy 15% off your order with code JOY15. Tis the season to give joy. Hello, it's James from My Dad Wrote a Porno. Now, Christmas just wouldn't be Christmas without a bit of badly written erotica by a 60-year-old retired dad. And you're in luck because this year's Christmas porno special is available right now exclusively on Spotify for two weeks only to get you in the festive mood. Not only that, but you can also listen to all four seasons of My Dad Wrote a Porno, as well as thousands of other amazing podcasts for your oral pleasure. Just head over to Spotify and start listening right now. Just open a few cages of suffering. And help people see that they are, that there is so much more available to them outside of this cage that their experience has, has created for them. And so much is, so much is determined for us due to the circumstances that we're born into, whether that's gender, race, where you're born, the circumstances of your family, where you grow up, that if I can, even that playing field, just a tiny weeny bit, I feel like it'll all be worth it. And honestly, not to put too an emotional spin on it, but like that it'll be worth it that I was the sibling that got to live. And, and, and that's, we, we, there was no chance of me dying. It was a completely separate circumstance, but that's sort of how I think about it, you know, cause it was so random and so unfair. So that feels like you sat, you, you carry some emotional weight on your shoulders and some form of like responsibility in terms of you're here, you need to make an impact. And it's less around, the, the motivation to do well in the business and more around the motiv- the fear of not making an impact with your life is what I'm taking away from that. Or the or the drive to have an impact. And okay. the, would you say would you say it's more fear of not making an impact or the drive to make an the impact? The drive to make okay. an impact. I don't, Very different. Yeah, mindsets. I don't really I don't I think fear is um certainly fear is a factor, but I'm it's more like this passionate drive to change things that I see that I wish they were a different way. And I think, and I have identified the business as the way I want to do that. I think the business is an incredible agent for change and is becoming more and more so. When I left college, I was told you can make a difference or you can make money. And I don't think you have to choose anymore. Yeah, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. No. You can definitely do both. Exactly. And so I am just crazy driven to do it. And right now this is the business, but I think there will be other businesses after it. But I think all of the businesses will be driven around this idea of making the world kinder and more equal. So three people in the company. Who runs the company? Sorry, three founders in the company. Uh, who runs the company? I do. When was that decision made? January of last year, so January 2017. Who ran it before then? We did equally. How was that? Because I can imagine that's a nightmare. So it was fine because it was really client 
driven so it, you know you brought a client on and you serviced suppose, it yeah i get it so it's sort of like three independent freelancers coming together it was one kind of and okay. you know we made decisions about strategy and we would never bring on a client without discussing it because when you're bringing on political clients there's huge implications so yeah. you know we had to each all... you represented this person three years ago yeah X, y, and Z. exactly okay um but then what happened in 2015 as we started to grow we started hiring a staff so we hired the first one in January 2017 and by the end of the year I think we were up to four and then in January of the following year we had six I might be getting the timeline slightly wrong but all of a sudden as soon as you have staff it's a whole thing yeah and it needs and you need policies and word of the day here. <laughs> <laughs> and systems and processes and all of those things that I had not even really thought about before and it needed somebody to run it so I just naturally stepped into that role and I so I was probably doing a CEO type role for about six to 12 months and what forced the formality of it to give you the time we were renegotiating our partner agreement okay and uh, it was what, more interesting on that why what triggered that it is it just the degree five, of work going into it uh because when so when we did the first partner agreement we didn't have any clients so okay. the the way it's written really changes when you're talking about a real amount of money versus a fictional amount of money yeah. and so what it just there were certain like there wasn't for example in the original we didn't have a great exit strategy and as i said bill and david are older than me and they'll they'll be thinking of retirement yep. in the foreseeable future and we didn't really have that written in so we needed to reassess how you were going to exit we needed to reassess how profit was divided now that we had a team it wasn't as easy as just dividing Eat what you kill so yeah, yeah. yeah okay um so that's what prompted it and then during that conversation it just became really obvious that um, I that it needed somebody to run it and I wanted to do that and they supported me in that and it's been and there was never any they had no interest in it so it, that was an easy decision really so from when you took the CEO position it feels like mm -hmm. the company's gone through some really interesting growth where yeah. are you today in terms of employees 13 we just hired 10 11 uh, 11 12 and 13 started last Friday and what triggered that I already know it's a loaded question because we briefly spoke about this before the mics went on yeah uh, what and i thought what your answer was really interesting what triggered your need to hire these batch of people in one go so all of a sudden in february this year i realized that we were just so stretched thin and that all of my team were going to quit if i didn't hire more people is the short answer the long answer is what i failed to do and this was such a huge lesson and i haven't i haven't i've learned the lesson but i haven't actioned it yet I haven't figured out how to fix it is I was not projecting out any length of time what our staffing needs are going to be in six months or 12 months is that because you didn't have the as we spoke about earlier there's no real process about winning clients so it's difficult to forecast revenue I think I just wasn't okay there's so many there's things so many things do. right yeah, 100%. there's so many things I think I just wasn't and I was very much making decisions based on what client I think so here's the tricky thing though if we get a client we can start working on it today if but it takes three months to hire the people yeah okay. so what happened was we got a handful of clients and we said oh we'll hire but it and then what happened everybody was so busy we didn't have time to write a job description <laughs> let alone you should see my linkedin post about a week ago i had no job description it's like we need a marketing executive manager please contact me that's all that's all i had um, <laughs> and we hired him today funnily enough <laughs> we literally gave him the job today welcome to the team Sam. <laughs> that's awesome um well there you go so you completely know my pain and i think that was really why and so now what i've learned is i have to have a projection three months six months nine months 12 months of what our staffing needs are going to be and be continually updating it so that we don't get caught short like this again but how do you balance your time in terms of like working on the business and in the business like when you're what's your day look like just as an overview what what do you actually wake up and do because i sometimes ask myself that and i have no idea i just feel like i'm putting out fires i got asked the other day what is your job and i said a fireman mm. i said i just put out and it made me sound much better than it is oh an entrepreneur uh i just put out fires all day yeah and i look back at the day and say what have i actually achieved today and there's not much I've just stopped Harry from crying about Final Cut or stopped one of the team from quitting. Like, what, what do you do? So, I th you know, as business 
owners, <laughs> we all have strengths and weaknesses. And one of my natural strengths is I'm an organized person. So I, there's a couple of things we do. First of all, we use a app where we all track our time. What is that? It's called Toggle. I've heard about Toggle. Okay. Okay. Yeah. T-O-G-G-L. And we went, we went through a period of that. We used Harvest for a period. Okay. Yeah. So it took a while. It took a while for us to integrate it. But once it's integrated, it's very helpful. And so I track my time and I'm, I find it fairly easy to do. And so what I do is every Monday morning, I look back at my time from the following week and see what I was supposed to do versus what I did do. So my general plan is that in a week, in an average week, I would spend 50% of my time doing sales 25% of my time doing team management because it's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's always and forever going to be the CEO's job, even when Havelina's, you know, 300 people big. And um, 25% of my time doing other. And other includes financial management, client work, because I'm still doing client work. There are certain things that I'm still the only one that I can do. So that's something we yep. need to fix. Um, and then all the other sort of the fire putting out. The, although... Most of my fires are in the talent management pool. Okay. Which I think is right now because we're understaffed. I'm hoping to fix that uh, and put more of my energy to proactive talent management rather than reactive talent management. And how do you balance being, un- this is a question that we're facing, how do you balance being understaffed and stretched thin with uh, revenue? Like do you, do, you, yeah. <clears throat> do you hire two, three, six months out before you know you need it? And then as the hungry salesperson go in and win the business, or are you waiting until you've got money in the bank to hire the person? So sometimes the first one and sometimes the second one, it's a calculation of risk. So right now, the three people that just started, one of the, uh, two of them are sort of funded and one of them's a risk. One of them is, um, and if, if, my three new hires listen to this don't worry (laughs) (laughs) don't worry what i mean because it doesn't really break down that way it breaks down that way in my head yeah um but it doesn't break that down that way financially but what i mean by that is let's say roughly a third of that new overhead is not yet covered by contracted work yeah and so yeah that was uh, the much better way of putting my question back which is like how much of it have you already pre-covered with client retainers or funding exactly exactly and so I made a decision and I've done this, uh, this will be the third time that I've done this where I've hired ahead and it's always worked out and I actually think I'm probably need to be doing it more. And really in practical terms, it's, it's not, we wouldn't make a loss, we would just make us profit. So it's yeah. basically putting money back into the business is the way I look at it. Firing people, have you ever had to do it? Yes. How quickly do you do it? When you know it's, when you know it's the right thing, how quickly do you operate? So, it's uh, really interesting. This is for me. <laughs> um, okay, so I had one experience where I waited way too long and then sat down to let the person go who I care about deeply and really honestly thought that she would be like, oh, okay, I get it. You know, and she was completely shocked. She was completely sideswiped. She had no idea it was coming. And so then she on the spot said, "Um, I I want another chance. And so that was really, because all of a sudden. How do you deal with that? Exactly. It's thrown you. Well, and I realized I had messed up because if she didn't know, if she didn't know that she was at risk of getting hired, that's my fault. That's on me. So we, so we did try and it just wasn't working out in the long run. Um, And I care a great deal about her and, um, and always will. So then there have been a couple... Biggest so lesson there biggest was... Biggest lesson there was you have to tell your team what you think. Okay. And I'm really, really good at giving people feedback when it's what they want to hear. But I find it really hard to do it when they it's what they don't want to hear. And I'm also really good at thinking I've said something that I haven't actually said. Because up here it's crystal clear. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so now I'm getting into a better practice of having the um, bold conversation. And one of our values of the company is um, kind, direct, and honest communication. And we talk about that every week. And so, and if now that we're getting big enough that people are starting to run into problems with each other, we come back to that all the time. Well, did you, did you do kind, honest, direct communication? That's pretty cool. So that, I think it's, we're not perfect at it, but we strive for it. We're at that point now. So it's really interesting me getting some feedback. And how big are your team now? Uh, Nine. Okay. Yeah, there's nine of us. Um, And 
Uh, we're just bringing new people in. We have a very clicky culture because we're all we've all been working so closely together and trying to bring people into the team right now. It's just something I'm aware of that um, like there's a fear in me that we sort of destabilize what we've got, but also we can't we can't stay at the size we are today. Um, yeah, it's just really interesting to hear that honest communication thing because I think one thing that I haven't done well or yeah, I've just done really poorly uh, is that regular feedback uh, to a team to the whole team. I do it fairly often in terms of where we are as a company, uh, but in terms of sitting down with Harry, I don't do that often enough in terms of sitting down where I think he is and the performance I need out of him personally. Um, yeah, that's just a, my takeaway for right now is I need to have that clear aligned communication. Um, just because as we grow the team, what I don't want to do is all of a sudden when Sam comes in, cause he's new, I'll probably think an oh, shiny new person. I can get it right with him. And then, <laughs> and then the rest of the team feeling fairly neglected because why is he getting a quarterly review when I wasn't getting it from day one sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I find that when we got to 10 is just big enough to have some of those like people politics. Okay. And I really struggled with it for a while. So we did a couple of things. Um, and I, whenever I, I don't know what you do, but whenever I am stuck on something, I always have like a problem of the week or a problem of the day. And anyone I see on in the duration of that day who has any interest at all of talking talking to me about my job (laughs) i ask them regardless of who they are or what the background is here's my problem what do you think and i get the most incredible feedback so do you mean do you mean people just within the team or clients or friends clients strangers like if they barista yeah (laughs) there there have been times you know because they say um what do you do that's as you've heard the pitch is kind of long and I don't always have interest in explaining what I do. So I'll just, you know, I'll say, um, I run a business. Actually, let me pick your brain about something I was just thinking about. And I get the best ideas That's that awesome. way. So one time I was at, it doesn't work with everybody. And with my friends, I've had to stop because they're sick and tired of hearing about <laughs> my business. Um, so one time I was at a friend's drinks at a bar and a friend was saying, you know, what's how's Havelina? and I said oh I'm really struggling with I can't even remember what it was but with x person and he said you know something we used to do at my company was we did a weekly one-on-one and he was like I still have he said they yeah he was like they um we bought they bought in like a management consulting firm and they paid all this money for them and they did all this training with them and basically, it's a 30-minute meeting with your, direct, with your direct report. So I, right now, three people report directly to me. So I do one-on-ones every week. So this week, we're doing them by Skype. They are sacred. Sometimes they get moved and sometimes they get canceled. But really, it's the most important thing. And in, th- in theory, um, the first 10 minutes is for you to give them any feedback the second 10 minutes is for them to bring up issues that they have. And it might be like a client problem or it might be, you know, something with a teammate or even a question about something that happened in the week. And then the last 10 minutes is about their professional development in or outside of the company. And he said, let me send you this form. And he sent it to me and it, and you know, he just happened to have it. And it was this form that I still use today and then detailed instructions of how to have this one-on-one. I desperately need that form. I will send it to you. Yeah, that is that is amazing because that is something that we fall, I fall short at, just all the time. Well, and it feels like at first it feels like a really big investment of time, but I realized somewhere along the way that the people is the most important part, and it's the people that are going to build the business. Mm -hmm. And so that's why at first, for the first six months, I was like, I can't wait until we're big enough so that I can hire somebody and I don't have to do this anymore. And then I realized that was never going to be the case. And so now um, there are times when I spend 50% of my time, especially the last few weeks when we've been struggling. And I've spent 50% of my time talking to employees, talking to them about things that happen, talking to them about their work, talking to them about things that might happen. And there are times when my whole entire day is spent coaching and giving feedback. And I've kind kind of come to realize that that's my role. And that's it's just the way it is. And how has that shifted from now you're at 13 people when you're at five people, I guess you're a lot more, you're a practitioner more, you were just doing the day-to-day work. Yeah. Is it that sort of like eight, nine, 10 person range that you started to make this shift? Sort of where we are now. The reason I'm asking it's sort of where we are now and it's, yeah, it's just, yeah, really topical. It's, for... Yeah, yes, that's about okay. where we are and it's really hard. And the What's other... the best advice you can give me in a sentence because I'll, I'll try it and I'll quit it because I'll think I need to be doing client work. Like, what's the pitch to make sure that I actually do this thing properly? And don't get sucked into client work, you mean? Yeah is to train the people that are going to do the client work. 
And I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't do that well. Okay. I didn't. I just threw them into the deep end and then watched them drown. Okay. Because I was dealing with, because I was focused on sales. So I'm not sure that I regret it because it's all worked out. But the the most valuable use of your time, I, I think, would be to spend time coaching and training the people that are going to take over your client work. And then the, and somebody gave me this advice. And at first I thought it was wrong, but I'm starting to think that it's right, which is your time with clients should be FaceTime and shouldn't be doing the stuff they don't see. So right now, I actually... That's, um, just that is amazing advice. So Knowing right, what we're going through in terms of company now, that is amazing advice. Well, that actually makes yeah. me feel better because I've been questioning this because I'm only just now thinking, no, you're right. So um, right now, the, the time I spend on client work, which is significant, they don't see. I'm writing, I'm developing messaging, I'm giving feedback to the team. The client is completely unaware of it. And we can say, oh yeah, Catherine did this, but it doesn't mean anything to them. Yeah, it's done at the end of the day. It doesn't um, matter who did it. Right, and what I'm not doing is I'm not doing the phone calls, the meetings, so they don't see me. Even though I'm on a product, they're completely unaware of it. And so what a friend of mine who runs a business, a political business, what she told me, and I thought she was so wrong, but I'm starting to realize she's <laughs> so right, is what she will do is, is she will, every now and again, just email them with an idea. Like, hey... I saw this in the news today and it prompted this. Have you thought about this? And she will, she will sort of, and now when I first heard that, my thought was, well, doesn't that undermine the team? Doesn't that undermine the client point of contact? But I think as long as the client point of contact is bought into this strategy, it doesn't, it actually lifts them up because it keeps the client happy and it keeps the client knowing that, the day-to-day practitioner element is getting looked after, yep. but I'm still top of mind for the decision-maker in the exactly. company. Okay. So what I'm trying to do now, I haven't... I and, and being aware of all this, by the way, comes from Toggle. Because I look at my Toggle, I realized this two weeks ago. So every week I go through and I calculate and it takes me five minutes. And I know that because I track it. Um, <laughs> Very meta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I calculate what I spent my time on versus my ideal... And then I go through and look why, and I'm never exactly on. So I go through and look like what were the problems. And then each week I document like what are my sort of strategic conclusions from this. And then I go back each week and read all of my strategic conclusions because my strategic conclusions take time to input, yep. they uh, to implement, they're never quick. So I, um, so one of them a few weeks ago was, I need to be putting my time in with clients at the FaceTime and not behind the scenes. Because I guess that's where the strategy conversation take place. This yeah. is where the, the important discussions around what you're going to, what your company is going to do. And we've got a client with Baxi and uh, I used to go to every monthly meeting and only it was, I think it was last month, the first time that Edie um, uh, now goes to the monthly meetings and only do the quarterly strategy meetings because that's when the 10 of us, the, the 10 decision makers in that yeah. company get together. Um, I'm seeing a huge impact there and we, I would like to roll it out to other clients. Um, but I've never put it in a way like that. The face-to-face time, that's where I should be there. But the day-to-day activity, the email writing, the email copy. Uh, yeah, super interesting. Yeah, I like that. And just, and, and being sort of creative about it, you know, if you've got, sometimes you end up with 10 minutes before a meeting and you can't jump into something, just call one of your clients. Like, hey, checking in. You know, and even if you yeah, get voicemail. I never do that. I, neither do I, but yeah. it's a great idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and thinking, just thinking, one of my mantras is there's always a third way we tend to think of problems as this or that and there's always a third way and so that is when i'm stuck on something i come back to like what's the third way here that's cool forces sideways thinking Mm -hmm. so give me an idea of you've been in the business for six years now Mm -hmm. some key takeaways for the people listening to the podcast today what have you learned one, what have you learned about yourself? Because the, the whole idea of becoming an, an accidental entrepreneur is super interesting to me. What have you learned about yourself in terms of being uh, moving up to become the CEO of a company where you've had uh, people with more experience that you're now having to manage? Um, and just what it's like to build a team. Like What are the, some of the, like, the key milestones that really stand out to you and go, that was really difficult. Uh, that you know that anyone today that's in a nine-to-five thinking about starting their own business that they're going to face, whether it might be mindset, it might be process. Give me an idea of a couple of things that you've learned along the way. I've learned so much. So let me see if I can come up with like a top three. So the number one, and this is miles above everything else, and I think this applies to anything you want to do in life, whether it's 
join a business, build a business, nothing to do with business is self-awareness and knowing yourself really, really well. Mm-hmm. And we don't know ourselves very well. There, we have this horrible habit of assuming that other people are like us and then we hang out with people who are like us, which just reinforces Compounds the it. point. Yep. Yeah. And so really getting to know yourself what and don't make any assumptions what are your native talents what are your blind spots what are your trigger points but how and, does someone do that like how does someone practically do that so i think how you do that is you experience things and then you observe how you respond to them and experience things i mean that in the pure purest purest sense hang out with new people try new hobbies do something you've never done before do something that scares you every single day so staying with my mom right now and she she's just had surgery so she can't walk really and um there's a dead bird in the back garden that i discovered and i actually wish i hadn't told her about it because as soon as i told her about it she has two dogs and she was very yeah concerned about the dog i would have left the bird where it was and so then she was going, we were, there was this whole discussion about getting the dead bird. And she said, she, you know, she can do it. She just had surgery on her spinal cord and bending over is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I am brave in many things, but picking up dead animals is not one of them. <laughs> uh, I have an animal loving vegan and I don't want to see or touch or be near a dead bird. And, but faced with this choice of picking up the dead bird or letting my mother who's just had spinal cord surgery bend over and pick it up I had to do it so I picked up this dead bird and what I learned about myself is it was way easier than I thought it was going to be and it's just little things like that like do do things just do things and observe yourself all the time and that's how you will learn and I am learning new things about myself all the time I had last christmas me and my husband went cycling in taiwan it was amazing and we cycled the east coast of taiwan and on the in the middle of the trip i came off the front of the bike and like ripped my face off in a really horrible way Mm. and i just have a little scar like here i was it was fine ended up being totally fine and what i learned about myself in that experience is that things are never or rarely 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 as bad as you anticipate them to be and that if you'd have said to me before we went, what happens if one of you has a really bad accident? What would you do? I probably would have said we would suspend the trip. We would get rid of the bikes. We would come home. And in fact, we went to the hospital. I got stitched up and we carried on <laughs> and it was fine. And so anticipation is such a powerful thing that can really limit us. And going Crippy. back to that idea of yeah. the cage. Yeah. we when, some, when something scares us, it often, in my opinion, comes back to the our roots and we just go straight back into that cage and so the number one thing is self-awareness and what i'm i feel like i'm getting better and better at the self-awareness thing and so now my next frontier is how do i help others do the same thing how do i inspire my team to get to know themselves really well and i have to every single day i have to remind myself it's not the same for her it's not the same for him like just because i think of it this way they don't necessarily think of it that way and that's a constant so that's number one Number two, it is all about systems. <laughs> it's oh. <laughs> all about systems. So I had an epiphany um, the, in 2015. So the thing about political campaigns is it's really repetitive. You're doing similar things over and over and over. And in, when we first started hiring people and I had to sit down and train them how to do something, it was really hard because I had done it so many times that I couldn't even articulate how to do this anymore. And I was so mad at myself. I'm like, why? Why of the thousand times that I've done that thing, didn't I write it down? Mm-hmm. And so now when people are starting businesses and I find myself seeking them out, like when I know somebody started a business, I just call them and say, hey, by the way, here's my piece of advice. Just write the stuff down. You're literally the process police. Yeah, just okay. write it down and just write, just get yourself a notebook that is your systems notebook. And every time you do something that you do over and over and over, just write down the steps and then put it away. And you don't need to worry about that until you hire somebody. But when you do, you can go back and you can type it up and there's your training plan. Like it. So that's number two write things down and then number three i think one and two is going to be hard to follow but i'm interested to see where you go with this yeah what's my number third lesson i've learned that like i think i'm not very good at this but just keep perspective you know it's 
it is really big and important, but at the same time, it's all completely meaningless too. But how do you keep that balance when you're as hungry as you are? Because that is what I struggle with. Do Do you think that's the people you surround yourself with? Honestly, no. Really? I think it's just the problem is when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm so... I've got I've got big ambition, but I also understand that I would give everything up in a heartbeat. I would drop everything. I would say I would give everything up in a heartbeat. If one of my kids ever, I'm gonna touch wood, make sure there's no fucking wood around me. Supply, uh, <laughs> we'll go with that. Plywood. But if if I ever found out that any of my kids were poorly, yeah, I would give everything up just for an extra ten minutes of their perfect health. Yeah, regardless of what, how, like I would give everything up for ten. And that's what it really helps me sometimes ground me is in terms of like everything is so important day to day. Every fire that I put out means. I, my clients, my team, my everything. But you would give it all up in a second for the people that you love just to be healthy. Yeah. And I find that so, so difficult to manage. Um, I don't know an answer for it. And that's that's the thing that is probably my biggest challenge right now in terms of caring so much about what I do, but also being prepared to step away from it to enjoy the things in life that really matter. Yeah, that is definitely difficult. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's different for everybody. So it's about having that interrupter that can inter- so you have your the natural habit that you're driven to do so it sounds like you're compelled mm-hmm. to just work as hard as you can as fast as you can as much as you can all the time and so having the thing that interrupts that thought process with the with the other thought process which is intellectually and in your heart more important to you so i have when i'm getting when i and i can i can feel it when i'm losing when i'm getting my ego is getting too big. I'm getting inside my own head. I'm, I think my shit doesn't stink. Like when those things are happening, I know I can feel yep. when, when I start to not enjoy hanging out with myself, I know that things have okay. taken a turn. And so, um, I, something I do is I like to get up high. So go to a high hike or go to a high floor in a building and look down and see, you know, especially if you can look over a motorway and there's, hundreds of people in those cars yeah, okay. and you can see them all or you can see the cars that they're in and they have no idea that I'm there. Yeah. And it really puts into perspective, there's all this going on and this is just an inch of what I can see right now. And it's all, go- if I ceased to exist right now, it would continue to go mm-hmm. on. And that can be just that sort of humbling reminder. Um, sometimes it's you know travel really helps me it's really helpful for me to come to london and remember that there are entire continents that have not heard of javelina (laughs) it's really helpful it just and even in our sounds like you want the occasional kick in the ego is what you're looking for all those cars have no idea i exist right now and it just sort of puts everything in perspective it puts it all in perspective because you just get so obsessed with your own bullshit and i but i think as an entrepreneur you have to do that because you you it's that balance of being obsessed balance. being obsessed with your own story and driving it forward i think like th- that whole thing about an entrepreneur wants to see change in the world and that's why they started a business in the first place yeah and you have to be slightly delusional to do that you just have to be yeah and it's having that balance of where where do i stop believing my own bullshit and actually wind it back in and again yeah super super difficult yeah and it is because i go backwards and forwards between the two like the standing on top of a mountain and remembering these cages of suffering that i want to release and it is it's like table tennis between the two do you think that's the answer do you think there isn't actually the middle ground you have to go black and white on it you have to go all in just like you have to go deep in what you believe you have to believe your own bullshit and just drive it forward and then literally just switch and go "No, no no like i have to just wind it back in is there a state of middle middle ground that you can live in or do you think it is just the, the binary black and white let's just go from pillar to post all the time i wonder if sometimes you're flitting backwards and forwards between the two so quickly that it feels like you're in the middle that's really interesting that's really interesting i like the way you explain that then <laughs> that's how it feels to me okay cool listen this has been amazing and I hope that if you've got to the end of this podcast and you're listening to the show, uh, that you take the time to learn more around what Catherine does. You've got a podcast. Yes, we do have a podcast. This is where, I, like, if you, guys, if you've listened to the show, this is where I'm calling on the start of our listeners. You email me all the time. You get involved. Catherine has taken the time to come and share this story on the podcast. 
I need you to take action and go and listen to what Catherine's got to say on her podcast. So let me just 30 seconds plug what your podcast is, what it's about, and get the guys from the Startup Diary over to give it a listen. It is called How to Change the World and it's conversations with people who have experienced change, all kinds of change and what they have learned from it. And really what it is, is listening to fascinating stories. And I am learning so much about change. Honestly, we did it really to expand our brand outside of Arizona. And I am getting so much more out of it than that. And outside of the podcast, if you've sort of hit some heartstrings or hit some uh, intellectual questions that people want to get a follow-up to, is there a place that they can reach out to you to follow up after listening to the show? Yep, they can just shoot me an email. It is Catherine with a C at Havelina.co. Spell Havelina again. H. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's not an H. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it's not an H. J-A-V-E-L-I-N-A dot C-O. Catherine, you've been an absolute wonderful guest. Thank you so much for coming to see us. Guys, hope you've enjoyed the show. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Starter Diary Podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking for the best gifts for everyone on your list? Kendra Scott has just what you need. Find jewelry for every style at an affordable price. From diamonds and genuine stones to the season's best trends, Kendra Scott jewelry is a gift that's sure to wow. You might even find a few things for yourself. Shop now at KendraScott.com and enjoy 15% off your order with code JOY15. Tis the season to give joy.